This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Today we have, like every other day, a rapid fire session. And this one is focused on articles related to infectious diseases. I'm here with my brother, John Freilich. John, what do you have up first for us? So first, we're going to be talking about a study looking at 7 versus 14 days of antibiotic therapy for uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia. This was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in October of 2019 by Yehev et al. Cool. And what was the research question here? They wanted to know, is a shorter course of antibiotics for gram-negative bacteremia non-inferior to a longer course? All right. I can appreciate why this is important, but how about for you? Why did you think this was important? Well, gram-negative bacteremia, you know, due to things like pyelonephritis or intra-abdominal infections is a common presentation on the inpatient medicine service. The available evidence about duration of treatment is limited to either non-randomized studies or guidelines that have kind of varying recommendations from anywhere from 7 to 14 days. It's known that shorter courses of antibiotics are associated with important things like reduced antibacterial resistance, reduced risk of secondary infections like C. diff, and perhaps might also help with healthcare resources as well. Yep, I'm sold on this one. So what was the study design here? So this was an open-label, analyst-blinded, non-inferiority randomized controlled trial done at three centers in Israel and Italy. Patients were hospitalized with gram-negative bacteremia, and they were considered up to or before day seven of antibiotics. Now, they had to be afebrile in the prior 48 hours and hemodynamically stable. They excluded patients if there was an uncontrolled focus of infection, if they had polymicrobial growth, or if there were specific bacteremias involved, like salmonella or brucella, um, or if the patient was immunocompromised. They were randomized to 7 versus 14 days of antibiotics, and the outcomes they looked at included the primary outcome, which was 90-day composite of all-cause mortality, clinical failure, which meant relapse of bacteremia, readmission, or extended hospital stay. There were also secondary outcomes they looked at, like individual components of the composite, as well as other things like whether or not they had subsequent resistant isolates of bacteria, if they developed C. difficile. And they also looked at a functional status outcome, and that was time to return to baseline functional status. All right, that seems to make sense to me. A good old-fashioned randomized trial, non-inferiority, and people randomized the 7 versus 14 days of antibiotics. Does that sound about right? Yeah, you got it. Perfect. And what did the included patients look like? So there were just under 5,000 patients with gram-negative bacteremia surviving to seven days. 2,000 of those were potentially eligible, and of those, 604 were randomized once they finally included and excluded relevant patients. These patients were aged about 71 years. There was a pretty even split between men and women. And 68% of patients had a urinary source as the primary source of bacteremia. All right. And what did they find? Was seven days uh, non-inferior, inferior, superior to 14 days? So what they found was that for this primary outcome of mortality, clinical failure, readmission, or extended hospital stay at 90 days, it occurred in 45% of the seven-day group and 48% of the 14-day group. And this met their criteria, showing non-inferiority. Now, what they also showed was that time to return to baseline level of activity within 90 days was actually shorter in the seven-day group. The median was two weeks to return to baseline functional status in the seven-day group and three weeks in the 14-day group. With regards to adverse events, they looked at things like AKI, abnormal liver enzymes, uh, rash, diarrhea, but there was no difference between the two groups. 
And with regards to C. difficile, there were four patients in total who developed C. diff, three in the seven-day group and one in the 14-day group. All right. So interesting. So it seems like seven days is not inferior to 14 days. But what are some limitations of this study? So there were a few limitations to consider. Uh, the first was that the primary outcome was largely driven by readmission rates happening in about 40% of patients. As well, there were low rates of infection with pseudomonas specifically. So how generalizable this is to uh, pseudomonal bacteremias is harder to say. And then by design, the results only applied to patients who had been stabilized by day seven. So for example, the randomization was not done at the time of presentation to the emergency department. But with that said, I think that that's kind of more practical in, in keeping with real life. You don't decide on day one how long you're going to treat someone with antibiotics for. It depends on how they declare themselves. Yeah, I, I can buy that. That all makes sense to me. So what's the take home point here for you? I think that in stable patients with gram-negative bacteremia, seven days of antibiotics has been shown to be non-inferior to 14 days. And in fact, there's this interesting secondary outcome, which actually shows better functional outcomes for patients. Gotcha. And practice changing for you? Yeah, I think I can feel pretty confident limiting my duration of antibiotics in the right patient setting. And I think that the secondary outcome of this functional outcomes is really important from a healthcare utilization perspective. You know, fewer rehab days, uh, getting patients home sooner. Cool. All right. Well, uh, next it's uh, up to me and I'm going to talk about um, severe morbidity and mortality associated with respiratory syncytial virus versus influenza infection in hospitalized older adults. This study was also published in CID and the article was published by Akerson et al. So what was the research question here? So, you know, really the question is how big of a deal is RSV compared to say influenza? And why do you think this is important? You know, I think we take influenza pretty seriously, especially among hospitalized patients. And there's good knowledge that influenza is associated with poor outcomes. I think we know that. But how about RSV? I often shrug my shoulder. I'm almost reassuring myself when I see, oh, came back as RSV. Perfect. Let's get this person home. Time to be discharged. But I'm not completely sure if that belief is totally grounded in evidence. Okay, that's fair. So how did they do this study? This was a retrospective cohort study of adults over the age of 60 who were hospitalized and tested positive for either RSV or influenza between 2011 and 2014 at a network of 15 hospitals in Southern California. There weren't a lot of exclusion criteria, which makes it easy for me, aside from everyone required six months of baseline data. Their primary outcome here was related to length of stay, and they also looked at rate of ICU admission and mortality, and performed a multivariable regression analysis to um, adjust for baseline differences between the two groups. Okay, and what did these patients look like? So there was 600 in total who tested positive for RSV and 1,800 who tested positive for influenza. The average age was 78, 60% were female, about one-third had heart failure, ditto for COPD, and immunocompromise was rare. So what do you think? Do we need to be worried about RSV? Sure, yeah. So I think I need to be more worried than I was, at least. Um, what they found was that those who had RSV had a longer length of stay, a threefold higher rate of pneumonia, as well as 30% higher rate of ICU admission, as well as one year mortality. And it's interesting when you sort of look at how the two groups of patients were treated. For example, 94% of patients with RSV got antibiotics at some point during their hospital stay, similar to the influenza group. 
and about 50% got steroids during their hospitalization compared to about 30% who had influenza. Okay. What were some of the limitations of this study? It was obviously observational in nature. It was relatively small. Because it's observational, of course, there's issues with unmeasured confounding. And it's always nice when you have a study that you can then take the information and change your practice. But this is really, you know, exploratory in nature, just providing more information about RSV and the, you know, complications, uh, morbidity, mortality associated with it. Gotcha. Uh, what's the take home point from this? You know, I think we probably shouldn't be shrugging our shoulders and, you know, reassuring ourselves, oh, perfect. It's just RSV. No, you know, I think we need to take RSV seriously. It's at least in this study associated with some pretty bad outcomes. And how will this change your practice? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, it's not as if there's a treatment I can now give these individuals. I think it reassesses or sort of reinforces the importance of, you know, supportive management, fluids, IV rehydration, close monitoring. And I think also probably the importance of close follow-up after these patients are discharged. And maybe for me, you know, not hastily discharging them from hospital. Sure. Yeah, it sounds like these people are at risk of complications. Absolutely. And, you know, at least in this study, as sick, maybe even sicker than those who had influenza. Fair. All right, John, back to you. What do you have up for us? So next up, we're going to look at a time series analysis of healthcare associated infections in a new hospital with all private rooms. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in August of 2019, and it was by McDonald et al. Perfect. And what was the research question here? They wanted to know, are healthcare associated infections lower in single versus multi-bed rooms? All right. And why is this important? Uh, well, healthcare associated infections is a very important complication of being admitted to hospital. These include things like drug resistant MRSA, VRE, as well as side effects from antibiotics like risk of C. difficile infection. These are all harmful to patients. There's conflicting evidence out there on whether or not single patient rooms actually help reduce these healthcare associated infections. And so this study really set out to try to address that question. Yeah, that, that um, you know, clearly makes sense, especially you and I practice mainly in hospital. I think also when people are then on precautions, sometimes they get seen less often. And I wonder about, you know, are they getting worse care maybe than people who aren't on precautions? So Yes, let's avoid these various infections and colonizations however we can. Anyway, what was the study design here? So this was an interesting study that took advantage of a natural experiment. In Montreal in 2015, the old Royal Victoria Hospital closed and all patients were relocated to a new hospital that consisted of only single patient rooms. So the old Vic hospital uh, was a mix of private rooms as well as three to four bed ward rooms. Um, Multi-bed rooms range from 80% of rooms on a medical unit to 60% on a surgical or an oncology unit. All patients were screened for MRSA as well as VRE on admission and weekly thereafter. So they had ways of tracking if there were new events. And they looked at a couple of different things. So they wanted to know, one, were there new colonizations? And that was defined as a new positive VRE or MRSA swab within three days of admission in the absence of a prior test positive. And they also looked at new infections. So that was VRE or MRSA that was isolated from a clinical specimen, be it urine, surgical wounds, sterile sites, or others, uh, in the context of you know, infectious signs and symptoms. And then they also looked at C. difficile to say, were there you know, changes in the rates of C. diff based on these private versus uh, non-private rooms? All right, awesome. And uh, what did the patients look like who were included? 
So, you know, it's a bit of a different study design with this time series analysis, but essentially the catchment area for this hospital is about 800,000 people. So a pretty big area. It's a tertiary care hospital that provides services for HIV and AIDS, tropical medicine, oncology, hematology, respirology, and solid organ transplant. So a, a pretty complex mix of sick, complicated patients. All right. And what did they find? So following the move, they saw immediate and sustained reductions in both the incidence of VRE and MRSA colonizations, and they also showed reductions in VRE infection rate. What they didn't show was differences in C. diff or MRSA infection. The other thing is that they were able to kind of provide estimates on the number of reductions of sort of colonization events, and they estimate that about 800 colonization events of VRE were prevented by moving patients into single rooms. Uh, they also estimated that about 93 colonization events of MRSA were prevented. All right, so uh, all we have to do is build a new hospital and just make single rooms and we can improve colonization and maybe infection. Any limitations here? I know, if, if only it was that simple. So, I mean, I guess there are some important limitations. One is that the study wasn't able to account for the effect that other antimicrobial stewardship changes may have had on the rates of these colonizations and infections over time. As well, they didn't have data on CRE, which was just not routinely collected at that time. And then another interesting thing that they talked about was what about C. diff colonization? Because we know that that is an important consideration and they just that wasn't collected. So they weren't able to speak to it. OK, you know, I think, as you mentioned as well, with any um, natural experiment, you don't always know what's driving the change. Is it necessarily the single rooms or is it just this brand new hospital with all the other bells and whistles that come with it? But either way, cool study. Um, what was the take home point here? Uh, the take home point is that single patient rooms are associated with lower rates of new MRSA and VRE colonization, as well as lower rates of VRE infection. There were no changes in the rates of MRSA infection or C. diff. All right. And is this practice changing? Will you now work at the Royal Vic Hospital? <laughs> so I think that this does have important implications in future hospital and ward design. I mean, of course, most of our hospitals are older and we're just stuck with patients in multi-bed rooms. With that said, I think the emphasis here is the importance of hand hygiene and making sure that you are following whatever the necessary precaution guidelines are. Yeah, I can buy it. And I think this is just another reason why uh, single bedrooms is probably the way to go. All right. So last I have uh, here one more article, and this is entitled Using the Self-Controlled Tree Temporal Scan Statistic to Assess the Safety of Live Attenuated Herpes Zoster Vaccine, uh, published in the American Journal of Epidemiology by uh, Dr. Martin Kuldorf and his team complicated study name. What was the research question here? Yeah, complicated analysis too, but we'll get to that. Um, so the research question here was using a data mining approach, how safe is the attenuated herpes zoster vaccine? Why is this important? So, you know, from a public health standpoint, we know that the herpes zoster vaccine is recommended for adults 50 years and older in Canada. Pretty darn good evidence to prevent shingles as well as the complications related to shingles. And like most things in medicine, we find out how well something works based on typically randomized trials. But when we want to find out how safe something is, sometimes observational studies are the way to go. And there's this new cool technique called tree scan, a data mining technique. So let's see, can it help us identify potential adverse events related to this vaccine? Okay, so what was the study design? 
So it was a retrospective self-controlled design using a large insurance database in the U.S. They included patients who were over the age of 60 who received the live attenuated herpes zoster vaccine between 2011 and 2017. Everyone had to have a year of baseline data before the vaccine. And what's really cool is that the outcomes, because you're using TreeScan, you don't have to actually define the specific outcome. So what TreeScan allows you to do is to scan across a tree of diagnoses. So the ICD codes, you know, the International Classification of Disease Codes, codes 1 to 100 are related to infectious disease outcomes, codes 150 to 200 are related to something else, and you can get more and more specific with a code, 100.1, 100.12, and that is specific to a given diagnosis. So, you know, that's what's super cool about TreeScan. Okay, so what do the patients look like? Yeah, so, you know, we don't have a ton of granular data, but it included, you know, there were over 1.24 million vaccinations that were included in the study. All the patients were over the age of 60, majority are Caucasian, majority are employed because this is a U.S. insurance claims database. But we don't have a lot of other granular data about the included individuals. Okay, and what was the main result? So again, this idea with TreeScan is that you don't have to a priori say, I'm looking for this specific diagnosis, you can scan across, you know, a multitude of potential diagnoses. And in this case, they scanned across over 7,000 possible diagnoses. And then using this tree scan approach, they saw which of the diagnoses popped up with a p-value of less than 0.1. I don't have time to go into all of it, but these are highly suggestive of outcomes related to the actual vaccine rather than just sort of chance alone. So again, out of 7,000 possible diagnoses, only four popped up, which is pretty darn cool. And they were mainly diagnoses related to cellulitis and allergy. So, you know, the rates of cellulitis were about five per 100,000 vaccinations and the rate of allergic reaction was about two per 100,000. Okay, very interesting. Uh, what are some of the limitations with the study? So again, you know, an observational study. Also, the results are sort of only as good as the quality of the codes that are being used. And, you know, we can think of certain diagnostic codes, which are highly specific, a heart attack, for example. And then there's other symptoms that patients present with, and maybe we just don't have a good code for it. So, you know, you are relying on these codes being accurate. And for symptoms that don't have a good code, well, that probably can't be found using this approach. Yeah, okay. Um, Now, what's the take home from this study? You know, number one, I think that it's pretty reassuring to see that among, you know, a million some odd vaccines being administered, that there were very few potential adverse events that popped up thereafter. And what did pop up were things that we expect, you know, related to an actual needle going into the arm. And I think it also shows the potential power of using a data mining approach to look for adverse events. Yeah, very interesting study. What do you think about how does this change practice? I think for me, certainly I need to remind myself to ask my patients if they've gotten this vaccine, because if they haven't, you know, I need to make sure that they do get it. And I think also it's just encouraging to see that we can use these sort of data mining approaches to study how effective, and in this case, really how safe medications or vaccines are. All right. 
I think that's it for me. I should also mention that I'm not getting any money from the makers of TreeScan, uh, but I'm certainly impressed with the tool. That's for darn sure. So on to the good stuff segment. Um, John, what do you have up for us? So the good stuff for me, uh, we're going to delve a little bit into the world of, I guess, veterinary medicine, maybe veterinary ID medicine. So there was a study that was published in PLOS. Is that how you pronounce it? I think that sounds yeah. right. Yeah. They looked at kind of why do zebras have their stripes? So there's this idea that perhaps the stripes actually help to reduce insect bites. So what did they do in this study? Well, researchers actually took cows and painted them with black and white stripes. Some of the cows were painted with no stripes, some had all black, some had all white. And they looked at the rates of infectious bites or behaviors related to being bitten. And what they found was that there was a 50% reduction in insect bites in cows that had stripes. So maybe, the zebra stripe is to help minimize mosquito bites. Well, that is cool. And, um, you know, my partner is a veterinarian, so I will ask her and, you know, fact check this one. And she also incidentally gets a ton of mosquito bites. So I'll <laughs> let her know she just needs to wear black and yeah, white. Paint your skin. There you go. My good stuff is, uh, yeah, less cool and exciting, but it's related to recent information released by the CDC, mainly talking about the sort of vaping crisis. I wonder if it's truly a, a crisis or not, but certainly there have been a number of cases of vaping-induced lung injury. And I saw this not too long ago, or potentially saw this, I guess, a couple months ago on the ward. And it just sort of reminded me how important it is to ask patients, not only do you smoke, but do you vape specifically? And for interested listeners, the patients who've presented thus far, typically in their 30s, they're quite sick. And the symptoms they present with appear very similar to the flu, pneumonia, et cetera. So, you know, important to keep this on your differential. All right. Very good. All right. So we had one good stuff for veterinary medicine, one good stuff for uh, human medicine. John, uh, a pleasure recording this episode with you. And I look forward to our next episode. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.